During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Cholamoid. Uh, it's Sunday of Cholamoid Pesach, and I thought I'd share something that I thought about yesterday, actually, when I was walking in this environment. We all are stuck at home. I hope we had a good Seder. We had a small crew, as probably everybody did at home. And I wrote up a whole Dvar Torah, whatever you want to call it, one of my Seder things, um, on Erev Pesach. And I, didn't finish, I finished about 20 minutes before the Seder, so it's too long to go into now. And it's probably not of interest anymore. Uh, once it's about Carbon Pesach and so forth. However, uh, once your mind starts com- uh, combobulating, so all kind of ideas come in there. And yesterday, which was Shabbos, Cholamoy, so the only thing you can do is go for a walk, right? That's all you can do. And in Baltimore, the weather is good. And uh, by the time I was going on the walk, I ran into uh, Johnson Marvin, a friend of mine, and I was telling him over, socially distant, you know, we're in two different sides of the street, screaming at each other, and uh, more or less. And I was telling him over something that I saw, and then it triggered some historical thing in my mind. I said, you know, I'll send, I'll send it out today. Uh, but before I do, I want to say that... Uh, uh, this uh, podcast I'm doing today is being sponsored by the Casorla family, by Rabbi Yosef Casorla from uh, from Florida, whose acquaintance I made not long ago. He said it's in memory of a brother who passed away on Shushan Purim, Eliyahu Nosem Chaim Yosef. I hope he doesn't mean it's past Shushan Purim. hope not. Um, and uh, in any event, the Nisham Shavalia from this, as we say in uh, my show. Uh, and now proceed. And there's some uh, Ashkenaz and Sephardi things involved this, so it'll be good. Uh, so I'll get right to the chase. After the Seder's over, I, you know, I, always, I have about 50, 60 Agudas, and you can't look at them all, obviously. And they're lying around. So not yesterday, but uh, probably, um, what do you call Friday, which was after the second Seder. So I was, look, I was in my office downstairs, and I was opening the note of Yehuda Agudah, which I know pretty well, but not entirely. And I saw at the end, a part that I never get to, a Pesach Matzah Mar. He's talking about the Mar. Now, I know the Nebuchadnezzar Yehudas from the school of thought that says, what's the Mar, the bitterness? Well, there's the spiritual bitterness, not just the physical bitterness. You know, the different Mepharshim, like I mentioned the other day, we're talking about horseradish. Some understand the Mar is referring to by Maris Chayehem in the physical sense, and there was plenty of that. But others understand it to mean in the spiritual sense. You know, the Jews were in the Memtesh Shari and all that sort of thing. Fine. So, uh, along those lines, I saw he's going, I think it was in the part of Pesach Matzah Mar by Rabbi Gamliel, I think, uh, in the Note of Yehuda uh, uh, remarks, that, uh, and I'm always a fan of his, uh, he said, he said like a nice little vart, and it goes like this, why is it Pesach Matzah Mar? It should be Mar, 
Pesach Matzah, or Mar Matzah Pesach, Parah should come first. Notice, if you go by the chronology of it, first came the embitterness, embitterment, and then came the liberation, either the, physically, it came the, the passing over of the angel of death, and then came the eating of the matzah, or something like that. But in any event, it's for sure that the Mar comes first. So why is Ramagamil say you have to say Pesach Matzah Mar, and that's how we say it at the Seder, why isn't it the other way around, that the Mar should come first? That's the basic question, right? Which is an interesting her. And, uh, so, but what he said was very interesting, the Nodav Yehuda. And he said that basically when they were in Egypt, they didn't understand how bad they were. You understand? One of the problems of being in, a, in assimilationism, or uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, one problem of being a big sinner, let's put it that way, is you don't realize you're doing anything bad. It's only after the Geula came that they looked back and said, oh, how could we have acted this way? I'm saying, so the, which I thought was a great word. The Marirus comes after the period of being like that is over. Once you're liberated mentally, once you're liberated, you know, in terms of intellectually, and you look back the way you used to be, then you look back with bitterness. And you, and you, so there's Pesach and there's Matzah. And then after that came the Mar, came the bitter feelings of how they had acted for so and so long, because, you know, they worship idols in Egypt and all the other things, they're connected with the notion of the Memtesh Sharituma. Okay? So that's a, 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 it's a very interesting word, right? And truth of the matter is, I was thinking to myself, that sounds like a 20th century type thing, not an 18th century type aura. Uh, it's the kind of thing you might find in a Haggadah from, say, Ramosha Feinstein or whatever. You know, that's, that, that, that's what uh, I would have expected, an American sensibility. You wouldn't have thought of that somebody like the Nerebi Hudo who's the rabbi in Prague from the 1750s till his death in 1793, didn't seem to match that. And that just led me, from historical perspective, thinking, like, where did he come up with a word like that? And as I was thinking, especially when I was walking, so the following came to me, and I don't know, it's just a guess, but it's a very interesting guess, because it so happens that the Nerebi is connected with a lot of people. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I did my work on him, and uh, one of them is uh, an interesting, controversial guy uh, named Barkiatilis. You probably never heard of him, 99.9% of you. Uh, and you never heard of his safer. But one second, Barkiatilis came from an old Prague family. See, he was living in Prague at the time of the Nidabihuda. It's a very interesting uh, story. Uh, the father, his name was Yona Yatilis. These are old Prague family. They were in Prague long before the Yehuda. They were descended from Kikyon de Yona, you know, very safe, a famous safer, uh, you know, sort of like the, uh, in the style of the Marshal, Kikyon de Yona. And, uh, in fact, that's why his name was Yona Yatilis. So this guy, uh, his, basically, as far as I'm aware, he's the first Jew in Prague who went to college and got an MD, uh, which is extremely unusual. Now, I could be wrong on him. He might not be the first, but he's uh, uh, up there with the early ones. I think his father was a pharmacist. Jews have always practiced apothecary, among other things. Every Jewish community needed its drugstore, right? Every ghetto, every kill had a drugstore of some sort or another. Whatever a drugstore meant hundreds of years ago. Maybe it was like the first chapter of Macbeth, but nevertheless, that's what a drugstore was, apothecary. And this guy, for whatever reason, decided to become a physician. And he went to, he was from Prague. Prague was a Catholic, so he couldn't get in there. But he went to Prussia, which was Protestant. And I remember he got an MD from one of the German universities. I think the University of Halle, I believe. And then he moved back to Prague. If you can see paintings of him. 
and the guy looks like George Washington. He's shaved. He does not have a beard, right? So he's a modernist. Oh, and uh, on the other hand, and he has a wig like George Washington, you know. And uh, so he clearly was a modern guy. And yet, I can tell you this. Uh, he was a 100% from guy. And he was a close associate of the Nerd of Yehuda. And they helped each other and all that. So he would be a, cl- a classic example of what sometimes called proto moscow or that might not even be the right term. It's the type of guy from long ago who said like this, I went to college, but I don't tell anybody else to go to college. You know so you're not a Moscow exactly if you do that. You say like this, I'm a weirdo, I'm a marginal figure. I went to college, it worked out for me. And he lived in Prague, and he practiced in the Jewish community. And But in the other hand, he daven every day, went to a shir, you know, 100% from guy. And uh, you had this all throughout Jewish history. Every community, even the firmest, had one or two weirdos who described themselves as weirdos that they went to college and became doctors because where did the Jewish communities get doctors from? So I, in college, you learned all kind of trade stuff at that time. They didn't talk about it. You understand? They didn't talk about it. So their self-described marginal figures and their self-marginalization exactly makes them not your regular Moscow. On the other hand, the times that we're speaking about, the times we're speaking about are uh, have to do with... with um, what shall I say? Um, mm, the second half of the 18th century. And this is when the Haskola movement arose in Berlin and the Königsberg, like I mentioned the other day. In other words, both Prague in Central Europe is one place. Then 200 miles north of that, something like that. 300 miles north of that is already Prussia and Berlin and, and those places. And there, the, the, the people, the Haskola movement arose in the sense that we do not want to be a marginal movement. The opposite. We want to influence the whole uh, seaboard. Okay? We want to influence the whole, the whole seaboard. And so, uh, that's who this guy was. Now, so, I just want to leave you with this picture. You have this doctor, and he lives in the Jewish community, and he looks different than anybody else. He dresses different than anybody else. He dresses European. But he's a from guy. Now, he had kids. Uh, this is always the problem with these individuals. How do you raise your kids? How do you raise your kids? Uh, you know, do you give them... Now, we find nowadays in America and elsewhere, there's a lot of people I know, so do you. The father could have a PhD, maybe the mother too, and they send their kids to, 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 to Lakewood, to Bonavich. You know, this is a statement. Now, they're saying, you know, I had a good education, but I want my kids to be from... And they don't give the kids a, a, a secular education. I suspect it's because they say like this, boy, when I was in college... I was a lot of trade for stuff out there. So maybe I made it, but I don't know if my kids would make it different. I don't want to expose them to that. So this is the reverse of what we would call today Torah Mata, or term Derechers. And it's very widespread. Agreed. There are many Rebbe's in, in, in very black hat yeshivas in Israel. Uh, super duper. And and if you ask who their father is, you see he's a professor, he's a scientist, he's a doctor. I know a fair number of the people like that, and so do you. So it's just one of the interesting aspects of the late 20th and early 21st century. But I'm going back a long time ago, and this guy, Yonah uh, Gatelis, he had several sons, and he raised them to be from, okay? And not only that, but his oldest son, who was born in 1762, was Baruch, and Benedict, you know? And uh, gave him a, what we would call today a very yeshivish education. So here's a boy who is, uh, you know, learning in the uh, haters, I guess, in Prague or whatever they do, the tutor. And then we was 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever they, they did in those days. He went to learn in the yeshiva of the Rav of Nodabihuda, because remember, the father's a close friend of Nodabihuda. 
So imagine a boy, very typical, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, in those years, uh, learning in the Shiva and Pragna of Behuda. We're already talking about the 1770s then, because he's born in 1762. By the 1770s, you start to get the Haskalah movement. People have heard of Moses Mendelssohn, and uh, in Prague, let's put it this way, there are a lot of people that are interested in that sort of thing. The Nodebune himself, the Rav, was very anti, cause he was, uh, but he was in a very tough situation. He wasn't a chassid, and he was too honest to say that all limude chol is treif. Um, he, he, he couldn't bring himself to say that. On the other hand, he definitely didn't want anybody to go into limude chol. So he was always a hoister and a petard. You know, that's a certain style. The normal ones that don't want to be too far to the right and too far to the left, but just between what the Torah says, often have a hard time. And uh, uh, so in the 1770s, he's very stark, especially against Mendelssohn and that and uh, people like that. Something must have snapped in this boy that I'm talking about, uh, who's 16 years old, and is in yeshiva, and... I don't know what happened, nobody knows what happened, but one day he left home, he ran away from home, ran away from the yeshiva, and he walked to Berlin. And he went to to become a Talmud of Moses Mendelssohn <laughs> in 1778. And he was there for like two years, something like that. And uh, my goodness, wow. So that's, that's a Moskillic story, isn't it? Uh, not the first, not the last. Because the Moskillic generally were people that had a Torah background, then ran away and broke away from it. So that's who this guy is. If that's all it was, I wouldn't be going through this because it's kind of boring. There are many people like that. Two years after he was in Berlin, there's some change kicked in and he uh, re- came back home. And uh, uh, he was ashamed. Now, I don't know what happened. It seems that he got disillusioned with some... With, with, with I, I'm, I'm guessing now. He got disillusioned with aspects of the Haskalah even though... There were other aspects that he liked about it. So, uh, Naskal was a very interesting movement. And one of the parts is that you're not only Gamar, 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 but other things too. But that doesn't have to be Trave. For example, Tanakh, Diktuk. Diktuk was a big deal in those days, believe it or not. Ivrit, in and of itself, they're not Trave at all. Uh, and the idea that you just don't want to do Gamar, 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 nothing but Gamar, 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 doesn't in and of itself have to be something Trave. Although, in the case of the Students of Mendelssohn, that's usually the way it turned out because the rejection of Gamar, Gamar, Gamar didn't end up in a moderate, uh, balanced orthodoxy, but usually became not from. But this guy seems to be turned off by that, as best I can tell. And when he came back, uh, he he was ashamed, and he saw it, and the Nodeby who had met him, and basically the Nodeby who embraced him and said, I guess all's forgiven, and uh, bygones be bygones. And he said, "Here's I did remind a Talmud. You've always been my Talmud." Notice he did exactly the right thing. He was Makarvim instead of Marakakim, and it worked. When I say exactly the right thing, obviously it touched the chord in him, and he jumped back into learning. Okay, jumped back into learning, and he eventually married a rich girl in Prague, and the father and he was very good in learning. Turned out, I'm talking about the Lumdas, and his father-in-law was rich enough to make the son-in-law Rosh Hashiva. He finds his own yeshiva. Finds his own yeshiva. So he had a yeshiva. There were like five or six yeshivas, believe it or not. Maybe seven in those years in Prague, which was a ir mokum Torah in a big way, even though it was also a place with Haskola, and you had Shabtai Tzvi guys, you had uh, Frankis. It was an interesting uh, community. 
to say to, to, to say the least. And so here you have a guy who, for the rest of his life, let's put it this way, probably from the age of 21 or something like that, 22, uh, he, he's able to be a Rosh Hashiva. Uh, not bad if, if your father can, can bankroll a thing like that, and, you know, it's, it's a good job if you can get it. Now, um, and that's who he was for the rest of his life. No, 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 I'm not finished. He also decided to do like his father, and he went to medical school and got an MD. I don't remember where, but he became a doctor. So here your mom should have a guy who is um, both a uh, Rosh Hashiva on the one hand and an MD on the other. Now, I never figured out exactly he did the medical stuff, um, but is the most unusual person I'm describing. Uh, Rosh Hashiva, he always have some kind of medical background. Maybe he didn't get the same education as his father, but anyway, that's what he did. Uh, so that would put you into your 20s and your 30s. By now you get to the 1790s. And uh, by that time, the Haskalah had become, a within certain circles, a big movement. And uh, he himself used to, to contribute to the Haskalah journals, which were published in Königsberg. So it's weird. A guy's Rosh Hashiva and the one and giving Pilbul Shurim in Prague. And the other thing, he's also sending in articles to what we would call today you know, uh, I don't know, the foreword or something like that, you know, uh, which you just don't see. Uh, and uh, and not like, you know, somebody writing in to defend the Orthodox or something like you know, contributing uh, Moscow articles. And then in 1793, the Notre Behuda died. And it's very famous that um, he sent he send an, an obituary, a hespid in German, and it was, uh, and now the 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 people in the Haskalah journal and the magazine Hamasaf, oh my goodness, they hated Nevi because he was a big opponent of Haskalah, and they thought that this guy would send in something sort of like dissing him, and instead he sent a very famous article in German, in which he said Nevi was one of the thirty six tzaddikim, and you know one of the gedolim of all times, and uh, and he said you know he took me in, and he when I when I went up to Derek, he brought me back. And, uh, you know, all that sort of thing. And, uh, uh, oh, my goodness, he, the, the Kabbalah says that the Tzaddik, the, the Neshama, is hovering around us all, uh, even after his death. This is the antithesis of what the Haskalah is all about. And they got real angry, and they wrote a whole thing attacking his Hespid, and he wrote a thing attacking them, and he said, I'll tear your whole magazine down. You're not the Masaf, you're the Asafsuf. And... Uh, a good time was had by all. Let's put it this way: it's one of those literary fights of the 1790s. If you're into the peculiarities of the history of Hebrew literature in the 18th century, uh, now, then the question was in Prague. Uh, this is an interesting story. The question was in Prague: who should be the rabbi after Noah Behuda? Well, nobody ever got the job again. Why? I'm sorry to say, big fights broke out. Who should get the job? The Noah Behuda has son. Who wrote the second part of the He edited uh, Rishmuel Landau. Uh, there were other people. There was a uh, Bitzal Ronsberg, you know, the Mar- you know, the Chachmas Bitzal. This guy wanted also Bark Edels. He wanted the job. Everybody wanted to be the next chief rabbi of Prague. Uh, and the result was that you had too many good candidates locally, and each one dissed the other. That's what happened. And so the result is none of them got it. One of them was the Teshuvah Meyavo, you know, um, and it was. Uh, I mean, let's put it this way. A lot of internal signed fights. And in the end, the Maskilim and the government in Prague, the Austrian authorities, 
they basically tell you, you know, it's not good if there's another note of Yehuda here. Better that you shouldn't have a chief rabbi of a dynamic sort. Let's just have a Beisden. He used to call Apelienten, heads of the appeals court, like the, the higher Beisden in, this, in the community. And so from then on, they only had, I guess you would call Dayanim. The city never had a real uh, strong um, uh, religious leadership, which is the reason that Prague started to go down the tubes. And uh, this is a theme I mentioned for those of you who are listening to podcasts, when I myself was in Prague this past summer, I remember sitting by a, a roadside cafe, and, uh, you know, it's a remarkable story where the city was a super-duper headquarters of Torah and learning, and then ended up, you know, several decades later with zero, nothing at all. And it really started with the fights that they had among each other, the different rabbis who should get the job, and each one knocked the other, and the result is that, uh, you know, they all took each other down, like one collective shimshin. It's a very sad story, actually. And uh, in the process, so this guy, Bark Yedlitz, was very active, and he blocked the note of you to some from getting the job. I don't remember all the dirty politics anymore. Uh, which made the note of you to some super-duper angry at him. That's an understatement. And in 1801, so that's when our hero was 39 years old, just just go to show you the, the, the when you hear Haskell, it's not what you think necessarily. He published a sefer uh, called Tama Melech, which is a pirish on the Shar Hamelech. Now you might not even know and talk about. It. There's the Rambam is of course the Rambam Mishnah Torah, and of course they're the classic commentaries that are published on the side of the Rambam, like the Magen Mishnah, the Kesef Mishnah, Lechem Mishnah, like that. That we all know, but I think everybody also knows. If you're listening to this, there are many other Mepharshim classics on the Rambam who have used the Rambam as the, uh, you know, a principal organization of their information, even though it's in the whole Shas. Uh, I mean, after all, the Prime Brisket wrote on the Rambam, you know, although you wouldn't call it a classic commentary on the Rambam. So one of them, there are many of them, many. And one of the famous ones, one of the most famous is the Shah HaMelech, which was a book published in 1771, I believe, right around this time in Turkey. The Shara Melchizedek like, became instantly a classic. It's a very lumdish, uh, um, uh, a super commentary on the Rambam, meaning it's commentary on the Rambam and all the and and on all the other commentaries by a uh, a, a Tur- Sephardi Turkish uh, rabbi. You know, Yitzhak uh, Nunez Belmonte. I where do you get a name like that? Obviously, his um, parents and grandparents were Portuguese Jews, Moranos, who had been raised Catholic. And ran away to Turkey. They were one of the lucky ones, and they still had their uh, Portuguese name, uh, Nunez Belmonte, <laughs> even though they originally came where Moranos. By the time you get to the grandchildren or something like that, so they're all irregularly Sephardi, totally Sephardi Jews uh, of the Ottoman variety, meaning real Sephardim, like the Casorla family who's, uh, who's sponsoring this today. The real Sephardim, in other words, they're not just Jews from the Middle East. They call themselves Sephardim. They really came from uh, Spain or Portugal. And uh, this guy obviously learned up a storm. And, uh, oh, he's a very poor person. And, you know, it's lucky that somebody, uh, I remember he had a relative who published a safer, And it's a super safer on the Rambam. It's like Or Sameach. It's like a Merkevitz Mishnah. You know, that type. And uh, it became an instant hit. And it uh, rocked the world. So if you're living in the late 1700s, uh, and you're in Europe even, among the Ashkenazim. Oh my goodness, the Shah Melech. He's called the Islamists on the Rambam. And it's very good. And he goes through whole Shas and Rishonim and Achronim and everything like this. 
And so there actually emerged a literature of commentary, so to speak, on the Shah Hamelch, believe it or not. I mean, Rabbi Akiva Eger did it, but you know, people like that. So this person, uh, Baruch Yetelis, he published a whole commentary called Tama Melech, which became famous. And it's all lumbus on the Shah Hamelech. So just for example, you know, why do I even, you know, mention this? Uh, what is one of the things that stirred me this? It's Pesach. I remember in Rabzevin somewhere, I can't find it. I remember uh, Rabzevin in the moment Malacha, he quotes the, the Tamil somewhere in connection with Pesach. And as best as I can remember, because I couldn't find the footnote, uh, the, the, I believe uh, the most well known of the Tamil is um, on, 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 on um, what do you call it? Hilchas Chamitzamatza. You know, it's a very famous Rambam at the beginning of, of Hilchas Chamitzamatza. It's a very well known. And the Rambam raised the question, do you get Malchus for Bali Ro, Bali This is famous stuff. It's not too technical. You know, in other words, if I own Chametz, a Bali Ro, Bali Matzah, so uh, let's say I didn't get rid of it. Let's say I didn't. I made a mistake, or I'm a bad Jew. Do I get Malchus? And the Rambam says, ain't no loka. Why? Because uh, it's a lot of In other words, if I owned Chametz prior to Pesach and I never got rid of it, I didn't do anything on Pesach to be over on the Bali Ro Bali it's, it's a memelis left over from before Pesach. So it's Ain Bamaisa. And you don't get Malchus on a, on a, on a um, Lavshin Bamaisa. That's what the Rambam says. If you want to get Malchus, no, as the Rambam says, if you want me to come up with it, hey, I'll read you the words. This is in Helkus Hamas uh, in the first parak in Gimel. The Rambam says, quote, Ain Loka, Mishum Bali Ro Bali Motza, Elim Kane Konachon to Pesach, Ochim to Kadeshi Asma that the only way you could be over on Bali Ro and Bali Motz and get Malchus is if you did something active. So if on Pesach I went and purchased Chametz, or if I uh, was Mechamet something, no, I took flour and dough and created bread. If I did that, then I would have done a Misa on Pesach. And then I would be doing something, Lemaisa Dick, active, to be violating Bali Ro and Bali Motza, then you could get Malchus. Avoim Hoyelo Chametz Kodem Pesach, Lobo Pesach, Lobiro, Eli Nichabashuso. But if you had chametz prior to Pesach and you never got rid of it, the Rambam says, "I'll be shavarsh they love and they don't look him in the Torah and they shlosh on Misa." You wouldn't get Malchus because you didn't do anything. It's a very famous Rambam, right, with a lot of stuff on it. And uh, one of the big issues uh, that the Shah Hamelach, you know, goes into—he's not the only one—but the Shah Hamelach goes into is why do you say um, you would get Malchus if you went ahead and purchased chametz on Pesach? Uh, it's a lot of nitik say The Torah says you're not allowed to have chametz, but if you have chametz, tashbisu, get rid of it. Tashbisu, get rid of it. So I think you know what I'm talking about. If you have a law, but the Torah also gives you an assay that could repair the law, then you don't get malchus even if you violate the law, even if you fail to do the assay, because it tells you something about the weakness of that law. I hope I didn't get too technical now, because uh, I have all kind of different listeners over here. That's a famous question. Let's put it that way. And oh my goodness, the the Sharmel goes into this back and forth. You know, he ne called Gedoli Achronim Tamo Rabbeinu. I feel also by Misa Nami Deluka Davilava Nitiglase. You know, and there's really there are dozens of answers in this. And the Tama Melch has a very famous long, very long arichas on this. This is often quoted in this farm. I think the the Mechas Chinuch, if I remember, talks about it. And I remember he gets into all kind of funny ukimtas, like the from the Dvar Shmuel, who was the big Sephardi rabbi again, this farm in, in Venice, very uh, chashuv a person. And he said, well, maybe he's talking about 
the last day of Pesach, Shvisha Pesach, was Shabbos. Okay? And you hold Ainbir Chametz al and you can't burn the Chametz on Shabbos. So then it'd be a situation where, you know, you violated the law, but it wasn't possible to be Misakin with the Asay. You know, because you can't burn anything on Shabbos. You, you know, those kind of Achrenish sort of things, which are fun if you like it, you know. Uh, all I'm trying to say is, that is not the typical thing you find from a Moscow. When you see somebody with a big Moscow, now you wouldn't think that he's writing a Sefer on Lumdus, where he has a, you know, the, the, the Shah Melech and the Rashmul and the Shagasai. He's got a lot of Shagasai and all this kind of stuff. It's just very unusual. It so happens that, uh, uh, so when I was just thinking about this, so I did a little bit of research last night, Joe, because this came in my mind after Shabbos was over. And I'll tell you the truth. I looked in the uh, Notabi Yehuda. I have a nice set with the with with all the nice Ha'aras, all the rest of them. And I see that the Notabi son basically wrote a sustained attack on everything the Tom and Melch wrote in very bitter terms. He says, now you're a liar, you're a thief, whatever any part you said, you stole from my father or you stole from me. You went to Vienna to be Malshin on my father. I know where he's getting all this stuff from. It's like very bitter. This is all censored. If you get the, if you haven't, if, if you want to see the safer Shahamel, excuse me, if you want to see the safer Tamamel today, not to necessarily do, but just in case you're interested in following this up, uh, it's not an unknown safer at all. I mean, the Briskarov quotes it, and you know, they're all the uh, big Lamdanam are into that. So it's one of those uh, types of swarm. Uh, I don't know if they knew he was a Moscow or not. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. That's a different story. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, they say, I repeat, they say, it's just a, they say that the Hassam Sofer oh, wouldn't look at the Sefer and he covered it up when he had it next to him and I don't know, stuff like that. But it, that's what they say. Uh, but uh, uh, when, if you want to see the Sefer today, you have to buy the new Shar Hamel. The, uh, for the last 20, 30 years, the Machon Yerushalayim uh, put out a very nice edition of the Shar HaMelech. When I was young in there, Israel, you know, it was always junky letters. It was always a pain in the neck to read. Very turn-off. This is the, now it's, they publish a very, very nice, clean edition. And they have all these commentaries at the bottom. Uh, you know, like I said, Rabbi Kivager and then Abram Shimon, uh, you know, Traub. And one of them is a Tom HaMelech. But they also have what they call He'oros at the bottom uh, on the Tom HaMelech. Among others, from the son of the Yehuda, Shmuel Landau. Uh, these are uh, censored. In other words, when he says something uh, uh, academic, they'll put it in. When he gets to personal stuff like you liar, you thief, you bum, you this, that, and the other, that they leave out. You understand? Uh, so, how do I know about it? There's a certain article in a magazine where somebody included all the dirt. Um, so, you see that you know, there's a lot of uh, bitter uh, feelings uh, over this rabbi fight in Prague. What happened to the guy? As I said, he was in medicine. In uh, And by the way, I once saw an article in German. The guy said there were three yeshivas in my time in uh, Prague, A, B, and C. And one was what you call right wing, and one was called middle, and one was called left wing. Uh, what's shot right wing, left wing? And that talking about Avi Weiss. So what are you talking about right wing, left wing? And right wing yeshiva is, is that the hats you could wear. He says you wouldn't be caught wearing a three-corner hat. That was considered too modernish. You know, like a George Washington hat. Uh, so the guys in Yeshiva didn't have a three-corner hat. For some reason, that used to be an anti-from thing to have a three-corner hat. If you look in the Yaakov Emden Sitter, I just happen to remember this. Yaakov Emden Sitter, he has a, a, a tzavah to his children. Don't under any circumstances wear a three-corner hat. It's like terrible. 
then there was another yeshiva that they had a three-cornered hat. So it's the same lumdus, it's the same learning, everything else. You know, they're all being mafapal in the same Bashan Machronim. It's like real yeshivas, but a three-cornered hat. And they had the left-wing yeshiva of Baruch Yetlis, the Tom Melch. They'd have a stove fight that. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you have, you know, in Israel, the, I, the closest thing I can imagine to use contemporary terminology is, oh my God, they're wearing gray hat. You know what I'm saying? You know, because yeshiva, they wear a gray hat. You know, same hat like everybody else, just not a black hat. Uh, some people really care about that, you know. Uh, so I'm just trying to tell you it's a different time in a different era. Now, uh, what happened to him eventually was uh, that in eight, there came the Napoleonic Wars. And without going through all the details of Napoleonic Wars, towards the end in 1813, uh, this was, there was a couple of big battles not far from Prague. This is when the, the war, they called the War of the Sixth Coalition. You don't need to know about that. And it was Napoleon versus a coalition, as usually was the case. And they had two big battles in, uh, in 1813, within days of each other. One's called the Battle of Dresden, and the other one's called the Battle of Kulm. And uh, Kulm is like 50 miles from Prague, not far at all. And there was a belt of casualties, because these were very bloody battles. Uh, the French won the first one, and the Austrians won the second one. And eventually there was a belt of casualties, and they brought them to Prague, you know, that was the nearest medical center, I guess, or whatever. And he got very involved in being metapo with the uh, with the sick. Like, this is this reminds us now of the coronavirus, you know, the, the, the uh, health officials. Uh, and he didn't observe, because it's 1813, the kind of social distancing which is necessary today. He helped set up special hospitals with tents. And uh, he was trying to make a Kiddush Hashem. Get it? He's a Jew, and a from Jew, and a Rashiva also. But he's very concerned about the uh, wounded Gaisha soldiers, especially the Austrian soldiers. He's an Austrian uh, citizen. You know, Prague was part of the Austrian Empire. Uh, so that's a good idea. But he caught their illness, and he died. It sounds like a corona story, right? Notice, you can't, obviously, medical professionals today realize the dangers of working in hospitals. Right now, we all know uh, from and not from and Jewish and not Jewish medical people who are on the front lines with the coronavirus. And we all know that they're, you know, obviously uh, wearing hazmats and, uh, you know, uh, what do you call masks and gloves and the guns of business. And uh, even then, it's not push it, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're risking their lives. This is why everybody's looking at them as heroes right now, because they're risking their lives. Uh, you know, think about that. And uh, I myself had a shot of somebody in my show, you know, she, she might be called. I know she was in the end uh, to be, even though she got off for Pesach, but they said, you know, it could be emergency and all hands on deck and they might have to pull her in for Pesach with Corona situation. It's a big shallow what to do. So I'm just saying we, 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 we deal with these uh, situations. Now, why am I mentioning all, first of all, it's interesting, so why mention this? The guy's whole career, Bark Yetla's whole career, he became, became an Akron, in other words, but Akron of a very unusual variety because as I said before, uh, he was, I would, I, would, I would say, even the leader of the Haskalah in Prague, uh, certainly in, the, uh, in his time. Uh, but you don't see somebody who's a leader of ha- Haskalah as a Rosh Hashiva. And Rosh Hashiva knows how to learn is writing Svarim. I mean, when I say Svarim, I mean heavy lambdas. Uh, that's very weird. Um, now, what is it that made him have this weird profile? He himself said, you know, when he was young, he he had a misadventure. He went two years off the derech, as we would say today. 
But when he came back, his Rebbe was 100% willing to take him as if nothing ever happened. In other words, the Nehru Yehuda did the right thing from a, from a psychological perspective. You understand? He said, you know, let bygones be bygones. And I don't even think he said those words. He just said, you know, we're picking up where you left off. As far as I'm concerned, you left Yeshiva an hour ago, you came back now. And, and that is what he did. And so he remained a from guy, very from guy, although not his kids. There's always the problem with the people, like I said before, who went to college or, or uh, walked that tightrope of the Haskalah, because maybe it works for you, but it's very hard to, to make it work for the kids. Uh, this is a big problem, which is why I said before, you see very often that the parents went to college, but they send the kids to, to, uh, you know, to Lakewood or something like that, uh, or the equivalent thereof, because they're afraid. Uh, I remember uh, many years ago, I think I told you this, many years ago I read an a, uh, interview in Hadoar, which used to be the Ivrit Maskelik magazine in America from the Zionist organization. And this was dated 1960 or 62, something like that. And Hadoar was interviewing the Lubavitch Rebbe at that time. And they asked him, it's funny, he sticks in my mind. And they asked him, are you in favor of college? No, I'm against college. Uh, you went to college, you know, in France, you went to college. And the Lubavitch Rebbe, in this interview, said, I guess, just because I jumped off the third floor and didn't break my leg doesn't mean I'm telling somebody else to do it, which is an interesting way of putting it. So you can hear both ways. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's tricky. But what did it, all, the, the reason I'm sharing this with you today is if this story happened the way I just described it, then it means that after he spent two years in Berlin, he came back, he was full of Mara, of Mariris. And he said, what did I do? You know, I messed up. And the Nehru was smart enough to discern that. Instead of saying, oh, you shake it, you bum, and this and that and the other, he did the opposite. So I can only assume uh, that Nehru was a very smart cookie, obviously. You know, besides being a gun, he was a very smart person. I can only discern that he, I mean, when I say smart person, he taught 100, he had a 400 a year, he had several thousand students, teenagers, in the course of his life, the Nehru Yehuda, right? Among other things, he had thousands of, several thousand students in, in the course of his life, which is amazing. Now, uh, that means he knew the psychology of young people. You know, we, we often think that these Gedolim are people with long white beards, they don't understand the younger generation. If it's the old school, then they were Russia Yeshiva at the same time that they were out basins, and they actually interacted with teenagers a whole lot of times. And uh, he said like this, you know, Pesach Matzamara, the Mara comes at the end, and if you see somebody want to return, then the chances are that person is already going to come tomorrow. And if you do the, if you have that kind of moral, then it's actually something to celebrate, because it means you have a conscience. The biggest problem we have today, obviously, is so many Jews, you know, the overwhelming majority of Jews today, are totally off the deck, and they don't realize it. You get it? There's a million people that are not going to have a Seder, and they, they don't even realize there's any Indian in it. There's a million people going to have a Seder a week after Pesach or, or something like that, or Treif, and they, they're not even aware of anything. There's no moror, okay? So uh, I just wanted to share that with you, and uh, this, this again, would be in line with the famous uh, you know, uh, observation, I think, of Yonah's name, says, you make a brach on the moror, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that was his question. Uh, who's also 18th century? Why don't you make a brach on the mar? The mar should be something you say, ay vey. Uh, no, no, no. If you get mariris, no, if, you, uh, if you're able to attain 
the level of regret, uh, then you have a clarity, and that is what moves you uh, to improve and sometimes even run a famous safer. Anyway, with those few thoughts, I wish you a good Cholmort. I'll see if I have any time to do anything else this week. But right now, I'm busy for the rest of the day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.